Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that poses three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And this week, we're getting seriously musical with a guest that you'll know for his roles on Red Dwarf and Coronation Street as the host of Robot Wars and The Gadget Show, as well, of course, for his critically acclaimed BBC Six Music Funk and Soul show. Raised in Liverpool, he was the third of four sons born to a father who was from what was then British Guyana and an Irish mother. His childhood was tough. They were the only black family on the Cantrell estate, which was notorious at the time for its high crime rates. He first came to public attention at the age of 15 when he won a poetry competition in The Guardian. In the late 80s, he jumped on stage to recite one of his poems at a Teardrop Explodes gig just before the band came on. They and the crowd loved it, so much so they hired him as their warm-up act. And then the late great Terry Wogan became equally as smitten, making him his resident poet on his TV chat show. Gaining momentum, he started touring as a stand-up with the anti-Thatcher collective Red Wedge before landing the role he continues to play to this day as Red Dwarf's Dave Lister, a mischievous, curry-guzzling, lager-loving, liverpudlian slob who's the last man in the universe. As well as living in outer space, he's also spent 10 years living on the cobbles of Coronation Street as cabbie Lloyd Mullaney, a laddish, scouse, funk enthusiast, much like the man himself. In fact, you could mark him out as a soul and funk expert, having hosted shows for Radio 2 and Six Music for almost 20 years now. Currently residing in Cheshire with his wife Jackie, 
He's a father of three grown-up children, and this month, on May the 22nd, his sixth music show celebrates the 50th anniversary of arguably one of the greatest albums ever recorded, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. It's a seminal album. It became one of Motown's biggest commercial successes and sounds as relevant today as the day it was cut. To mark its birthday, my guest has assembled his fantasy funk band to perform and reimagine some of those classic cuts from the album, which will be recorded live at the BBC Radio Theatre. As a soul fan, can it get any better? Well, let's ask him. We're dialing up Craig Charles. Do not fear, because the Gadget Show presenter is here, Craig Charles. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello, how are you on the tech, Craig? I I can't even change. I can't change a fuse and a plug, to be honest. Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's not my job on the Gadget Show. <laughs> how many years have you been hosting the Gadget Show? About four years now. I, I do a thing on it called How Hard Can It Be, where I try and set up so-called easy-to-install home tech. And, uh, you know, they say it takes 15 minutes. It manages to take me about five hours every time. <laughs> and, they, and they put a clock on like that, and it's just so humiliating. <laughs> oh, it's good fun, though. <laughs> hey, listen, as a soul fan, the What's Going On project, I mean, does it get any bigger, any better, any more dreamlike? <laughs> <laughs> I I do enjoy um I do enjoy doing my stuff, man. Yeah, and that album, what's going on, is often in the top three best albums of all time. It's voted in no matter what the genre. So uh, with it being fifty years old, it's great that the BBC have let me put my fantasy funk band together. And, I know. Uh, I know. Well, the the band came about by uh, what happened was we. Uh, on my Funk and Soul show on Six Music, we decided to have a little competition who, who people thought was the best uh, English or British uh, Funk and Soul drummer, the best British Funk and Soul bass player. They all had to be alive, by the way. Uh, the best uh, Hammond player, best guitarist, best horn section. And then I sort of... I'd, I'd had a couple of white wines one day. Good. I thought, why don't we phone all these <laughs> superstars up and see if they'll be in the band? And they all said yes. So we had, like, you know, James Taylor from the James Taylor Quartet on the Hammond. Wow. John Terrell from Smooth and Terrell on vocals. The Haggis Horns, um, of a brilliant horn section. Working out of Leeds from Scotland. Jason Ray, who unfortunately died. He was the leader of the band. But uh, but they've carried on and they're brilliant. Ernie, Ernie McCone on bass, who plays with... When all the American soul acts come over to England, wow. they often won't bring their band, but they'll get Ernie to put a band together for them. So yeah. we've got this band together and we're going to uh, we're gonna record the album with some six music, uh, kind of six music music sort of people uh, doing some versions of the album as well. And it's just, man, it's just... It's such a sacred album. And I just think it's going to be a great day. And uh, it's nice to squeeze a bit of money out of the BBC for a change, get a bit of budget. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was thinking, geez, you must have got the only bit of live budget there's left this year. <laughs> Tell me how the show came about. Did you pitch this show or was it was it brought to you? No, it was pitched by us. We sort of said someone has got to do something to, like, uh, to commemorate uh, this album. Um, and they went, oh, okay. I don't know if they thought of it, but uh, they certainly weren't weren't reluctant. They were, they were right happy to do it. So That's it's amazing. quite good because I do the six music show on six, and then do I do ten till midnight on two. So I'm yeah. kind of so it's sort of it'll be 
between both of those stations. So, you know, I mean, it should be all right, you know. Multi-channeling I am, because <laughs> I can't multitask. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you're, you're kind of, this album, I mean, you're right, 50 years, Craig, 50 years old. And it sounds as relevant and as fresh as the day it was cut to my uneducated ears. I love this record. What does it mean to you? Well, it's just, I mean, you talk about it, but it's relevance now. It's even more relevant now than when it was made. I mean, mm. you look at you look at America uh, post Trump, and you look at you look at uh, uh, the police officers shooting black people in the street, going into homes and shooting black mothers, putting people out of cars, shooting them in the back, and it very nearly never came to be because Barry Gordy didn't want Marvin. Um, doing sort of protest songs, doing that sort of mm. psychedelic soul. Uh, he, he wanted Motown to be like a pop label, you know, and he wanted Marvin in the suit with the bow tie singer with Tammy Terrell or Kim Weston. And, and she'd recently died and he was dead depressed. And um, and um, he didn't even write What's Going On. It was written by Obi... Oh, Obi Benson. Obi Benson. From the Four Tops. From the Four Tops, yeah. And, um, and he took it to The Temptations and The Temptations... I'd been, you know, sort of messing around with a, a bit of psychedelic soul, a bit of protest, you know, sort of ball of confusion sort of stuff, and they didn't want to touch it. And even John Baez got offered it. She knocked it back. And then when Marvin got hold of it, he just turned it into a thing of beauty. This actually takes me really beautifully into my first question for you because you're right, let's set the scene. It's the spring of 1970. It's a really dark time for Marvin Gaye. Um, you know, you said Tammy Terrell had just died. She actually died in his arms on stage from a brain tumour. Yeah. And he was, he know. never, you know, he, he never reconciled himself with that loss. Um, and at the same time, his brother Frankie had just returned from Vietnam where he was fighting yeah. with horror stories that moved Marvin to tears. And then this song lands in his lap and it's kind of, it's been passed on by Joan Baez, um, by, you've just said, The Temptations, The Four Tops. And he wants to do this song. He loves it. He, he falls in love with this song. Um, and that's how it came to be. But when when in your own life has an opportunity knocked because other people just went, not for me, thanks, not today? I'm not quite, I'm not sure, you know, Kate, because they never tell you, you know. Uh, when, you, when you do a job, uh, if, you're, if you're doing the job... Uh, they never tell you that, oh, Jonathan Ross passed on it and uh, this passed on it. Everyone's passed, you know, <laughs> and you're our eighth choice. <laughs> you know, they always, make, they always make you feel like you're the one. We had you in our mind right from the start. I, I, I can tell you that um, there's so many things that I've not, I've been very, very lucky in so much as there's some jobs, I mean, really big jobs that I haven't felt comfortable doing and I've passed on. And they've turned out to be shite. <laughs> and like, I've, I've looked at it and thought, whoa, dodge the bullet there. Really? You know, dodge the bullet. I'm not, and I'm not naming names. Uh, but Oh, go on. No, no, no. But some of the jobs <laughs> I've taken where everyone's told me, Craig, why are you doing that? Don't do that. That's just staff. That'll never work. And I've sort of took them. And they've been really big hits. I mean, I do remember the first making the first episode of Robot Wars. And um, and the radio control robots were on the same frequency as a local cab firm, so they were just acting really. <laughs> they were acting like really strangely. Then they all broke down. <laughs> then they were 
pulling the robots into the middle of the auditorium with bits of invisible twine. And I'm looking in the mirror in my dressing room with my big Robot Wars jacket on, saying, what have you done with your career? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Red, Red Dwarf was flying high. This was the next step, you know, and I thought, you've, you've screwed this up. And then a few months later, I walked into the BBC or the old TV centre, and they used to have. Remember, they used to have the television screens with their yeah, you know, the most watched shows on and all. Yeah, yeah, with the most watched shows on, all the viewing ratings. And Red Dwarf was number one, and Robot Wars was number two. And I just thought, right. well, ru- rumours of my death have been greatly exaggerated. So that kind of like, <laughs> but it was, it, it, it was a risk to do something like that. And then when we did Takeshi's Castle, and we took like. It's a Japanese game show where people just hurt themselves. <laughs> they try and um, complete this obstacle, obstacle course and, uh, and then they storm the castle and, uh, and then they win. But they, they do things like skipping stones where they, they, get their, they get their bodies shredded. It's like endurance to the max. Yeah. Uh, they run 50 miles an hour to a door and bounce back because the door's boarded up. <laughs> Stuff. It's quite strange, you know. Um, but we took that and turned it into a 24-minute show, just took it out of the boring bits and just got people smashed themselves up. And um, it kind of appealed to my, you know, to my sense. I think it's funny. What, so I love, you know, it'll be all right in the night when you, when you see babies running into walls <laughs> and grandpas falling off slides and stuff like that. For some reason, that makes me laugh. And, um, and and that was good as well. But again, another risk. Yeah. Know. Because um, also, am I right in saying that Alan Rickman passed up um, the part that you went on to make famous in Red Dwarf? He did. Alan Rickman and F- Fred Molina were going to be, um, mm-hmm. were going to be Lister and Rimmer. Their careers were so terribly damaged by not doing Red Dwarf work. <laughs> But there you go. There's an op- that, that, that's your Joan Baez right there, Alan Rickman. <laughs> Alan Rickman. But I mean, Alan went on to you know have an amazing career, and I'm still in space, flogging a bloody tramp steamer through the the deep depths <laughs> of space, looking for a way home in a really hot curry. You know what I mean? Still there. Yeah. God. <laughs> um, how many years since you started Red Dwarf now? It's about 33 years. We did um, the, the first lockdown. We brought out that that feature, and that was, I think, 32 years. And we brought out the feature Promised Land. And we were supposed to have made another two features by now, or at least another one, with it, and going on to do a third. But obviously COVID put, put paid to all that. So hopefully we'll get to doing it sometime next year, I suppose. It's just one of those shows that's got the most extraordinary long tail. It's like uh, it's like pasteurized milk. It will never go off. <laughs> it just keeps going. <laughs> well, hopefully, I think you're talking about steri- sterilized milk. Yes, that's it. Yes, not yeah, we pasteurized. Used to, yeah. We used to get steri at home, man. You're right. <laughs> You'd look in the fridge and go, "How long's that been there? Well, how long have you been alive? Uh, well, I'm eleven. Well, that's how long it's been in there." <laughs> There you go. Get the stereo. <laughs> uh, we were poor, but we were shoplifters. No, um, I was going to say, uh, <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah, it's one of those shows that kind of, it's got a very loyal fan base and it's sort of a worldwide fan base, really. So really lucky to get that. I mean, again, purely accidental, you know, but I've never had a real, really had a career plan, Kate. It's just... You're not. Things just 
I've kind of happened. Not really, no. I, I started out being a poet, wanted to be a poet. And, um, and I first started out being a really angry young man, uh, doing Saturday Night Live and poems about racism and the police and stuff like that. And, um, Red Wedge. Red Wedge. Yeah, Red yeah. Wedge. Now, that was, I was really young then. I was 17, 18. And, uh, yeah, there was Billy Bragg, Paul Weller, myself, Skin mm -hmm. Video. Um, uh, oh, uh, just like going up and down the country, doing things in front of, you know, for the miners, for the miners' strike, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. it, was when, it was at the time when in television and on stage, there was no um, outlet for, uh, for a more left-wing a view of the world. Everything seemed to be so uptight and sort of right wing and kind of, you know, you had people like Bernard Manning on the telly doing, st and Stan Boardman, you know, you know, people like that doing jokes that were kind of really off colour, <laughs> forgive the pun. Literally. And, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And we were, we were kind of the reaction to that really. That was what alternative comedy was. I remember when Saturday Night Live started, the, the regulars were me, uh, Ben Elton, Brian Laurie, Harry Enfield, and uh, the Vicious Boys, who were uh, Rick and Aid. And, um, and, uh, and they all went on to great things, and look at me here. <laughs> Rubbish. I'm not having a word of it. But actually, when you go back to that time, Craig, that is kind of your what's going on era, isn't it? That was you standing up saying, not acceptable, pushing boundaries, offering a different voice and trying to put a different lens on what was a very right and uptight uh, of the wise media. Yeah, I was very, um, I was very lucky. The moment I, I realised I could actually, you know, make a difference, not much of a difference, but a difference and change things was when I was doing Saturday Night Live and I had to write a thing uh, each week because it was all, you know, about this week's news sort of thing. And uh, these police officers had beaten up uh, these kids in Islington in London and uh, they jumped uh, back in the, uh, the Black Mariah and, and drove off. And the police uh, said they couldn't, um, they couldn't get to the bottom of the case because none of the police officers would come forward. Uh, so they weren't really investigating. They were expecting the police officers to, like, uh, to come and say, yeah, sorry, Gov, it was us. Um, so I did this poem. Um, what was it? No siren screamed blue murder. No people screamed and ran. There was just a smell of burning rubber. Then the police jumped out the van. Didn't ask us stupid questions, though we know all no policemen can. Didn't say, halt, who goes there? Don't you know it gets getting late? Have you been running, Sonny? You do look in a state. They just dumped out the van and hit us on the head. They got, got in, back in their white Mariah and left us there for dead. So naturally, there's questions that I'd like to ask. And it went on. I painted the whole scene in poetry and all that. And uh, the next day... Um, one of the coppers went in and said it was us and grassed himself up. So having watched the show and, um, and that made me think, wow, you can't actually, you know, Effect make change. a difference. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you know what's even more incredible is that you can remember line for line what that poem was. That's, that's quite something. That's just a bit of it, actually. I, I used to be able to remember it all, but, you know... <laughs> a lot of water's gone under the bridge since the, the right on 80s, I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, which kind of, it kind of brings me on to my, to my next question for you, because that's about speaking up. That's about challenging the status quo and demanding answers. And in so many ways, that's the kind of uh, dilemma that Marvin Gaye faced when he was warned that release what's going on would ruin his career by Barry Gordy. So Marvin had got this record. He loved it. 
He really was mm. so passionate and determined to release it that he tracked Barry Gordy down, uh, who was on mm. holiday in the Bahamas at the time, and said, I want to put this out. And Barry Gordy said to him, are you insane? You are going to ruin your career. And he really pushed back against it. Marvin effectively went on strike to, uh, to get uh, the album made. He paid all the musicians himself. He took it outside of the of the of the Motown family, really. And um, and you know, although he used the Funk Brothers and stuff like that, but I mean, he paid for the musicians, and um, he effectively uh, wouldn't work again until uh, the album was released. And um, and Barry Gordy, to be honest, had, um, he was smooching up to. Diana Ross at the time, and he, his, his whole focus was on uh, Diana Ross and the Supremes. And uh, and for some reason, he took his eye off the ball and, and the album just snuck out a little bit and it got released and almost instantly went absolutely massive. It just, so it just shows having that faith in your own vision sometimes. You have to fight uh, for what you think is right for you and what you believe the mood of your audience and the mood of the nation is and where you want to take your music or your poetry or your acting or your comedy or whatever. Sometimes you really have to stand up and believe in yourself because... Um, let's face it, these large corporations aren't going to believe in you. Um, they want they want an easy life. They want three, they wanted three minute pop songs, uh, guys doing syncopated dancing. Yeah. They wanted uh, lollipop music and, um, and they didn't want to take a risk on something that was, uh, which is now universally considered an absolute work of art, you know? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. As I understand it, and this might just be, you know, folklore and myth, but the album was never meant to go ahead and somebody at the label took um, took a chance on it, I suppose. And while Berry wasn't looking, had it pressed and, and put out. They only did 100,000 copies. It sold immediately and went on to become Motan's most commercial record of all time. So, you know, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it, that that album had to fight so hard to be heard because it was almost blocked every step of the way. Well, and you know what? I think that, that that's what makes the album so special as well. Mm. I've noticed in my career, you know, I've been on shoots and some shoots have been really easy, right? But when you see the finished article, the shoots that have been easy, I've been a bit shite. And yeah. it's like the shoots that are really difficult, really hard, and the pressure's really on, have turned in to be uh, some of the best work I've ever done. I mean, people come up to me all the time saying, 
It must be a laugh-making red dwarf. I bet you have a laugh-making red dwarf. I bet it's brilliant. And it's not. It's a nightmare from start to finish, to be honest. It's so hard. <laughs> it's so difficult. The costumes are so uncomfortable. Why? Well, the costumes are so uncomfortable. The hours are like 12-hour days in, under hot lights wearing leather. Robert's wearing a rubber mask. Um, <laughs> Danny John Jules is always late. You've got loads and loads of lines to learn. And then at the last minute... Uh, there's uh, there's a rewrite and you've got to learn them all again and, and it just and there's you know there's so much to do plus there's such a legacy to the show that you don't want it to be anything but really really funny and the pressure's on and it's like it's a re- it's a really difficult shoot to do but the end product is so satisfying whereas the easy shoots sometimes the end product can be a bit naff yeah so that, that was kind of taking me to my question which is you know Marvin had to really fight kick. Uh, curry favour with people that he he had to recruit onto his side to get this record out so that he could get a message out that he thought needed to be heard. Uh, When have you ever had to follow a similar path in your own life? Well, I'm actually still doing it, Kate. I've uh, I've written a series of uh, children's poems called Scary Fairy. And it's based on this little fairy who sees children's... um, children's nursery rhymes and um, children's uh, sort of fables uh, in a different light. It's through, you see it, the story through her eyes. And um, we've had the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra, Dave. Um, I've done three of them with like the BBC Phil, with a 94-piece band. And for the last four years, I've been trying to get them turned into animated 30-minute cartoons. And um, and I'm still fighting, still pushing, because I so I so believe in the project. I mean, I tell you, it's like it's like scary fairy woke up early in the wood behind the dairy. I'm sure she saw a sight she swore she'd never seen before. A little girl in bonny jacket making such a fearful racket, heading for the cedar tree, bluebells way up past her knee. That little girl should be out riding the dark wood thought as it looked down and gave a terrifying frown. For the girl had on a riding hood the colour of the deepest blood. So scary fairy hair all curly was curious about this girly and scrambling from her tiny hollow beat her wings and went to follow. Red Riding Hood was heading for the middle of the wood where scary fairy knew her grandma's tiny cottage stood. Red Riding Hood... Past the woodman pruning back some hedges, so Scary Fairy was quite wary and hovered round the edges, cause she had seen him chop some of her favourite trees down dead, and once she did yet a wolf after chopping off its head. So Scary Fairy struck the prairie, went through the garden of Mary Mary, who wasn't nearly as contrary as history has said. She skipped across some cockle shells, but tripped upon some silver bells, fell face first down a wishing well and landed on her head. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. It's oh my like thirty God. minutes long. It's <laughs> like Rapper's Delight for kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I just want them made, you know. And I think they're so evocative and I think they could just be great cartoons. But like, um, you know, getting stop frame animation cartoons made now, it's, it's, it, they only do seven seconds, seven seconds a day. And for 30 minutes, they're talking about 2.3 million quid. And it's raising that money and getting investors to turn around and say, because you want it to be brilliant, don't you? So it's got to be the best. Of course. And um, I've got I've got everyone all good to go. Uh, McKinnon and Saunders, who make Postman Pat, and they made like all the stuff for Mars Attacks, and they do, you know, the, the, the amazing Mr. Fox and all that kind of stuff. Incredible. Um, they're all good to go on the stop frame animation. It's just trying to get the money, and um, I'm still going. I'm still out for it. So if anyone's got two million quid to spend for thirty and minutes, listening to this podcast, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Put, put me in, put me in. I won't let you down. It'll be brilliant. We'll get an Oscar. 
<laughs> Can you slide into his DMs, please? <laughs> let's, let's talk about your poetry because that was what brought you to um, public consciousness. And it's an extraordinary talent that you still possess to this day, Craig. I've no, I mean, I can't remember what I had for dinner last night, let alone poetry, uh, uh, you know, that you could do for 30 minutes probably and not drop a beat. It's amazing. Uh, how... Uh, how did you harness that coming from the background and the upbringing that you did where that just wasn't a thing? No, you know, you, you're from a, a working class background and yet here you are at 17 marching up onto stage, waxing lyrical. How does that work? Well, I, I kind of, I was, I was quite young when I started doing it. Um, it was, I think it was John Cooper Clark's fault. He's a, he's a great friend of mine now, John Cooper Clark, but he was a personal hero back in the day. That's one thing about being famous, Kate, isn't it? That um, you f- you eventually become friends with with your heroes. That you absolutely yeah. adore and admire. You know what I mean? Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> and, it, and that but, thrill never goes, does it? No, it never no. goes. Even when you know when somebody's name comes up on your phone, you're like, uh, me? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. It's great. It's sort of like I'm still that 14 year old boy going, wow, 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 wow. You know, yeah. uh, I'm terrible <laughs> in green rooms. <laughs> I'm terrible in green rooms and all that. I, I, I go up to. I'm, just, I'm such a fanboy, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm such a fanboy to people. I, I, I'm working in my job now. Um, I've got to. I mean, I've got to interview some of the some of the finest uh, musicians, Black American, because my show basically deals with the golden era Black American music, you know. Mm. And um, and I've got to interview some of my pure heroes. I mean. When I interviewed James Brown, it was like, um, it was a bit like uh, Notting Hill, that set up in Notting Hill, where they're in a fancy hotel and all the interviewers are outside in the corridor and you're allowed in to the hotel room and you've got two minutes with Mr. Brown, okay? So I arrive and um, I've got two minutes with him, uh, but like, you can't talk to Mr. Brown. He's got some with him, some with him called Mr. Glenn. So you have to ask Mr. Glenn if you could ask Mr. Brown <laughs> a question. So I'll show you how it goes. You say, um, uh, Mr. Glenn, I, I, and you can't call him James. You have to call him Mr. Brown. So you say, Mr. Mr. Glenn, I'd like to, um, to ask Mr. Brown what it was like in his first doo-wop group in the 50s, Famous Flames. And Mr. Brown goes, I'll take that one, Mr. Glenn. Yeah, it was really good. And he starts telling you the story. So after... <laughs> So after a while, I'm getting comfortable and the woman's um, uh, g- g- giving me the wind-up, you know, the PR's giving me the wind-up, we've had you two yeah. and a half minutes or whatever it was. Yeah. So, I, for what, I, so for one last question, I said, um, how many children, Mr. Glenn, because I asked Mr. Brown how many children he's got. I'll get that one, Mr. Glenn. Uh, I've got eight. And I said, um, how, how, long, how, how young is the youngest? He goes, the youngest is two. And I said, um, so it's still working, Mr. Brown, on stage and off. And he goes, more on stage now. But I like you, boy. I like your attitude. You can call me James. <laughs> you can call me James. And, uh, you know, I'm like, wow. And then from t- having a two and a half minute interview, I was there for 45 minutes just talking about wow. music and talking about soul and stuff like that. And just like fantastic. When I interviewed, talking before, you know, how uh, Marvin Gaye's, album uh, could have broken him. Barry Gordy did not want him to do a protest album. Well, I, I interviewed Billy Paul and he brought out Mrs. Jones 
And mm. it, it, it being that big crossover record, me and Mrs. Jones, it being a big crossover record, then he was fated by white America. And um, and his career was just zooming. And then he, the record company decided that his next single was going to be Am I Black Enough For You? And, um, and, and Billy Paul was going, do you think that's a good idea? Do you think that's a good idea? It's a, br- it's a brilliant song, Am I Black Enough For You? But it's kind of... It's kind of a protest song. It's kind of it's kind of angry, black American song, um, quite rightly so. But they put that out as second single, and from being me and Mrs. Jones, top of his career, crashed and burned from the second single. So you know it can be swings and roundabouts when you when you yeah when you're playing that game try, trying to get your music out. Do you know what I mean? It didn't really work for Billy Paul. It just it, it just stopped him in his tracks. You know. Have you ever had those moments where? You've, you've had to stand up and say something, especially, you know, with the ability to, to link it to poetry, something that's really important that somebody said to you, you should be doing that. You know, that, there's, there's risk with that, Craig. Do you really need to take this risk at this point? Much like Marvin with Berry Gordy 50 years ago. I, I think I'm more of a, of a coward than those guys, to be honest. I mean, there's some things that have been happening um, just recently in the media um, I mean, things about sort of Meghan Markle and Harry and stuff like that, uh, the way they've been constantly badgered and attacked by certain people. Um, and I've kind of wanted to get involved, really. But do you know what? To be fair and honest, I haven't had the bottle. Uh, don't want the... Don't want the the, 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 the... the payback. I don't want the... The abuse. I don't want the, you know, the, the Twitter trolls. I don't. I don't want. I don't want all the hassle with, uh, that comes with sticking your head over the parapet these days. Sometimes, so, you know, I think they were, were much more, were much braver than I was, and uh, and I'm 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 glad to admit it. I mean, to be fair, I'm 56. I've got a lovely house, a lovely wife and kids, um, a lovely life. Um, Sometimes, you know, I feel as though I'm settling into that paunchy middle-aged thing where it's just like, why risk everything for an ideal? Do you know what I mean? And that's quite cowardly, really, isn't it? Would you think you would have? Um, do you think you would have felt differently as a younger man? Oh, as a younger man, I would have got right stuck in. <laughs> yeah, you would, wouldn't you? Yeah. So, what happens across life that ta- what what happens that dims our, our kind of volume button on that stuff? Do you think? I don't know. I think it's getting settled, isn't it? I think it's sort of, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. As you get a bit older, um, I think you find a lot less things to be angry about, to be honest, and um, and I think you find that sometimes anger isn't really the best emotion for it. Um, and you become sort of, I don't know, you, 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 you get dulled, don't you, to the kind of inequities of life, you know, you kind of, they, you know, it, I think you become numbed. I, I, I think you become numbed to uh, the inequalities of life a lot of the time. And, um, and I find the older I get, I've got so many more questions than answers, you know. You don't want that kind of um, sort of acid rain fall of Twitter trolls and commentators and people picking holes in something that you're trying to 
uh, put out there by way of public support, yeah, it it becomes quite exhausting. Um, and I and I, I can understand that that you feel like I've been here, I've done this, I've pushed boundaries, um, I have affected change. Yeah, I just um, I mean, and, and maybe you know I'll get a second wind and I'll get a bit of my bottle back and and get stuck in. But I mean, some people have got bigger platforms than than, than myself, you know, and, and the way they use. Their platforms constantly hammer someone, constantly, constantly, constantly hammer someone, and um, I think it's I think it's disgusting, really, what's happened to Harry and and Meghan. I don't know the ins and outs of what their lives are or anything like that, but just the constant abuse they've received, I think myself, is just unwarranted. I mean, they're just a, you know, I, I don't understand why they care so much about them. Yeah, to, to constantly slay them, do you know what I mean? And I think we've just missed a, a, an opportunity there about this. Yeah, I, I, um, I agree with you entirely as well, actually. There, I think there was a missed opportunity, um, big time. Yeah. But you also think to, to, to live their life, regardless of whether, you know, you agree with what they've done or you don't, that kind of constant commentary, that constant jabbing, that has got to break the human spirit after a time. We're not built... To live like yeah. that. No, we're, we're not built there for this constant criticism. And you know what? Everyone talks about 1984, the novel, uh, George Orwell, and they, you know, and this thing being run by, the state being run by Big Brother. Mm. I think he got that all wrong. And, and now I think the state is run by Little Brother and it's the constant, constant, tweets and the constant negativity of social media directed mm. to, towards one person and you know the, the cancel cancellation culture and stuff like that i think that is i think look i think the state has been run mm. by little brother to be honest and um and i think that's quite a dangerous thing uh, i'm getting very deep now aren't i <laughs> going on project is a music lover's dream come true can you think of any other times in your life or your career that qualify as a dream come true moment oh i've there's been so many of them um i've been really lucky i mean things like you know meeting james brown meeting billy paul i mean things like that i've been amazing i remember once i was at dinner um <laughs> i was only about 20 and um, I was at dinner and sitting opposite me was George Harrison and sitting next to him was Ringo Starr and sitting on my right was Michael Caine and sitting at the, at the head of the table was Bob Hoskins and sitting at the other bottom of the table was Neil Jordan. <laughs> and I remember sitting there having dinner with them, just having idle banter. And Ringo was still drinking back then. He was hilarious. And... Uh, just thinking, oh my God, I've arrived, you know. <laughs> I was like, I was 20 and just thought, oh my God. And they were all talking to me about Liverpool and what's Liverpool like now. And I was taking the mick out of them saying, well, you, you'd find out if you ever went back there, George. Do you know what I mean? I got so scoused <laughs> while I was talking to them. Do you know what I mean? And like, I was kind of berating them for abandoning Liverpool. You left us, George. You left us. You know what I mean? What were you thinking? You know what I mean? Liverpool's the centre of the universe. You know? <laughs> like, and, um, 
Oh, oh my, my God. God. Yeah, because their contribution to Liverpool is so minimal. I mean, what, what, what <laughs> kind of footprint have they left culturally? I know. And just not realising that when I look back at it, I probably think... I was, if I was George and Ringo, I'd probably been thinking, what a twat. That's why I left Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why I left Liverpool. <laughs> Everyone lives on the Wirral now, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Says the man that no longer lives in Liverpool as well. <laughs> exactly. But I'm getting closer. I live in between Liverpool and Manchester now. So I'm getting closer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I lived a long time in London and then just, I don't know, maybe that's an age thing as well. You say, when you're tired of London, you're tired of life. I was just tired of traffic and people yeah. being really rude to you in the street. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I'm quite happy that I moved back here. Well, I only moved back here for a job. I moved back here to do Coronation Street. And then when I decided to leave Coronation Street, I did say to my kids, OK, next adventure, where are we moving to now? And they went, well, Dad, we've grown up here. Because while I wasn't looking, I was on Coronation Street for 10 years, and while I wasn't looking, I know. my kids had the temerity to grow up and um, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and they live here. This is their home, so so we stayed, really. So after that dinner table experience where you're, you're 20 years old, Craig, and you're sat and you're looking at half of the Beatles mm. and you're riffing with them and sort of calling them out, going, oh, yeah, turn your, right. your back on Liverpool. Like... I mean, surely, well, what, talk me through, when you go home that night, do you lie in bed and go, did that just happen? I, I think um, I think I thought, to be honest, at the time, that that was going to be an everyday occurrence. <laughs> that was going to happen all the time. I was going to be hanging out with the Beatles and Michael Caine and stuff like that, and that was the way my life was going to go. Um, because, you know, because I was so terribly young, and, and they're your only reference points, you know. And... Um, and, you know, and, and, and so you think that's going to happen all the time. It's only much later on when you reflect on it, you think, wow, wasn't that a sort of a special moment, you know? Because I was a massive Beatles fan, you know, massive Beatles fan. Although, to be fair, because um, uh, I was born in 64, so to the height of Beatles fame, they broke up by the time I was, they broke up in 70, didn't they? Not 70, so mm. um, I was only six when they broke up. But, um, but... I mean, Liverpool was obsessed with the Beatles, but our house, my dad came over uh, to England in 58 from Guyana. He'd, um, he was a merchant seaman and he missed his boat in Holland. And because um, he had a British Guyanese passport, it was cheaper to send him to Britain than it was to send him back to Guyana. So he arrived at Liverpool docks with like a, with a pocket full of change and a box full of records. And, um, and while Liverpool was swinging to the uh, to the to the Beatles, we were listening to Harry Belafonte and Ray Charles and um, and BB King and Muddy Waters and and sort of like so our house was kind of a really sort of plus we lived in this big housing estate full of white people and us, so we were very I was very disconnected from that whole sort of musical revolution of the 60s in Liverpool. Mine was, I was listening to the golden era of black American music with my dad, which was quite cool looking back on it now. I feel so blessed to have had that. Um, yeah, blessed what an that. education. I can't say I just said blessed. That sounds so American. <laughs> I do think, though, when I go over there, when I go to Barbados, we go to Barbados quite a bit, and I do go over there and just think to me, Dad, what were you thinking? You know, you grew up in the Caribbean. You grew up, you know, looking at islands like this. You grew up with this weather, 28 degrees nearly every day. 
Why did you want to go and be a lorry driver in Liverpool? I just don't get it. <laughs> I just don't get it. And why did he? You know? Was it was it employment opportunities? What 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 was the drive? That was it. There was like, it was just um, it was just like there was no money in in the West Indies then. There was no money in Central America, Guyana, um, Guyana, Venezuela, Brazil. They were just really really poor, and. Um, and of course, the call came to come and drive buses and trains and stuff like that over here, and um, and that's basically what most of uh, that Windrush generation kind of did. Um, my dad was different. He, my dad, he was a merchant seaman. I think he, he was with some floozy in Amsterdam and missed his bloody, uh, <laughs> missed his bloody ship, uh, you know. <laughs> so like he was different but like he was a character my dad I'll tell you was he? Uh, I, yeah I, um, I, I could tell you stories about my dad but they'd probably dig him up and arrest him <laughs> <laughs> Maybe is that where you get your chat from Craig your dad is, was he a raconteur he was a, he was dead charming with the ladies. My dad was dead charming with the ladies. Everyone loved him. He was just a really nice, big-hearted kind of guy, really. Um, so yeah, he sort of like um, he kind of gave me a bit of the patter. You know what I mean? A bit of the patter. But you know, I got my own moves as well, Kate. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I bet you have. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and did you was your dad alive long enough to see the success that you went on to create and enjoy? And and what did he make of that? Because that's that's a different ballpark to driving driving trucks and yeah, he did. being a merchant seaman. Yeah, he saw a lot of it. My mum didn't, unfortunately. My mum's my mum died. Uh, she was forty six when she died, so I'm like ten years older than my mum was when she died, which is a bit wow. weird thinking about it. But uh, she died at forty six. Dad, my dad went on to eighty two. So yeah, he saw a lot of it. Like you know, he sort of um, he saw the nice houses and the nice cars and you know, kind of. Um, you know, uh, sort of, yeah, he saw, he saw me, he saw me, he saw my rise and fall and rise again, you know, he saw the career patterns, the ebbs and flows, and um, he was very supportive, very proud. And um, I was glad to be able to give him that, you know what I mean? Because um, uh, my brother Dean, who's unfortunately passed away now, he passed away while I was in the jungle doing that. Yeah, I'm a celebrity. Um, and he was, a, he was a police officer and he, he was the first black inspector in Liverpool. So I, he was doing that, and I was doing that, and so he was just—he um, was just really proud of his boys, really. Do you know what I mean? He sort of like uh, we kind of achieved what an immigrant coming from the West Indies in in, in the, the late fifties could only bloody dream of, of, really. Yeah. 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 I mean, it quite it is quite quite an achievement, and and your brother did kind of break new ground in the force, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He was the first uh, black inspector and all that, and um, and then. Uh, and then you know he got he got invalid he got invalided out of the force he he, he hurt his back chasing a villain over a, a wall or something like that so um, but yeah he was like um, so my dad was really proud of both of us I mean two obviously separate career paths Steam was always the really intelligent one the really fit one um, the one that like uh, you know he, he'd be out running he he, he didn't smoke he, um, and. He died of a heart attack at 52, cycling to work. Whereas me, I'm the complete opposite, Kate. And um, still going still going strong. Yeah. 
I mean, you've, you've battered your body in ways that I probably don't want to hear about, Craig. And yet, yeah, here you are, remarkably upright with all your faculties. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and it, it's like a, there is no, there's no rhyme or reason to it, really, is there? No. You know. No, there isn't. So you've kind of, and, and it must be weird when you pass that age where you've, you've outlived your mum, you've outlived your brother. Do you start to, does it start to affect the way you look at life and think, hang on a minute, couldn't be, I might not be here much longer. I'm, I'm going to have a bit more of a, an appetite for life. You know, I, I love my job. I love what I do. I'm lucky enough to do a lot of different things, which, um, which kind of like allows me to, because I've got a very, you know, small attention span. So um, it's really nice to have a, a few projects going on, doing different things rather than, I did a play once in the West End called Teachers. And uh, after, after about three weeks, I just thought, Can't do it. oh my God. I've got to do this for a year. Oh, my <laughs> the God. The same thing over and over. The same thing over and over again. To me, that is hell, yeah. you know. That is absolute hell, you know. Um, yeah, you're, you're too much of a cat on a hot tin roof, aren't you? You like to leap around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose so. You should see us on stage when we're DJing. God, it's a party and a half, man. Uh, well, I'm really hoping that we can see you back behind the decks sometime soon with an audience. Um, that aren't wearing masks and that, you know, life returns, Craig. That would be great, wouldn't it? It will do. It will do. And you know what? We'll all party like it's 1945. <laughs> we'll even break that... St- we'll even break the stereo. out. We'll get the sterilised milk yeah. out. <laughs> Lovely. Oh, well, listen, I will look forward to tuning in because it's not often that we get to see some of the best in the business mm. wrapped around a record that is one of the best records ever made uh, and see it reimagined 50 years on. I mean, that's just a beautiful thing. It is. And um, um, thank you for uh, for all your attention. And I'm sorry I ramble so much. I love talking to you. <laughs> you are velvet to the ears, sir. You really are. <laughs> and I really hope that you get your animation made. Kids need that. I think, that you know, for kids, that's a really lovely thing to hear the, the magic of rhymes. I started doing it for my kids, actually. I'd do a couple of minutes every night and read it to them. And then when I came out of Coronation Street, they turned around and said, uh, Dad, why don't you... I said, I'm looking for new adventures, you know. And um, they said, Dad, why don't you do something with that poem that used to read us of, of a night? And I said, and I dug it out and went, it's all right, this, isn't it? And that's how it all started. Good luck with it. Thank you. And uh, let's hope that somebody with really deep pockets is listening, Craig. <laughs> That's, that's my big hope, Kate. <laughs> There's a billionaire out there with your name on it. <laughs> oh, Craig, thank you so much. Craig Charles. Thank you. My thanks to you, as always, for loaning us your ears. White Wine Question Time is produced by me, Kate Thornton, with Richard Hatherall and Libby Knowles for Yahoo UK. Our beats are provided by Andy Bell, whose back catalogue is available on iTunes and Spotify. If you are raising a glass whilst listening along, please try to do as we always do and drink responsibly. And if you're short of things to do, you've got a little bit of time on your hands and you feel like being nice and helpful, why not rate and review us? It really helps us to be found and discovered by new listeners. I'll see you next week. Listener.